Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases, as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Okay, here we are for part two, case study of Sam the human and Mucho the dog. If you missed part one, make sure you go listen to that one first. So before I dive into what Sam and I did together, I wanna mention that Sam consulted with her veterinarian and started Mucho on some medication as well. It sometimes takes a village. In fact, a lot of times it does. And for Mucho, it, it took a village. So don't hesitate if your dog is struggling to talk to a veterinary behaviorist or a veterinarian who is familiar with and comfortable with behavioral drugs, it could be the difference between success and failure. So the first issue that we're going to talk about is Mucho's crating issue. So if you'll recall, he would really just sound terribly vicious anytime a person would walk past his crate or walk a dog past his crate. Didn't matter if they had a a dog with them or not, but any person near him in a crate got a really big eruption of vocalization and he just sounded terrible. Um, and so Sam first attempted a counter conditioning approach. She had people, anytime a person walked into the area that he was in, they put food in his crate, no matter what else he was doing, he could be lunging and snapping at the crate if, if, if necessary. And they were still to put food in the crate. She did this for, weeks and she did it multiple times a week to no avail. Um, when she told me that that wasn't helping, I, I said, you know, it, it should have helped quickly. So let's definitely pivot. She certainly tried puzzles, remote feeders, covering the crate. She tried all those obvious things. He'd still had this really huge eruption and anybody getting near his space. So we finally decided that that wasn't actually fair to Mucho and just went ahead and switched to car crating. And this is all in the agility context. Mucho's fine in a crate in his home. So this was at the agility facility. So Sam switched to car crating and she worked really hard to make the car an oasis for him, an oasis from his triggers, but as well as from the weather. So she got a much bigger crate. She reduced his visual access out of the car using cardboard and blankets and things like that. And she worked hard at temperature control so that he'd be warm in the winter and cool in the summer because she lives in a place that has extremes in weather. So 
Switching to car crating was a big step for Mucho to be comfortable in the agility context. It's just not fair sometimes to ask dogs to cope with things that they don't have to cope with that are really, really tough for them. So if your dog is really struggling with something that they don't actually have to deal with, I would encourage you to think about whether or not you can just work around that thing so the dog just doesn't have to deal with it in their life. Next, we dug into my worked up protocols and repaired Mucho's start button. So let me explain both the start button and the worked up protocol first. So worked up is a course that I teach um, for Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. Depending on the next time that you listen, but depending on when you listen to this, it could be running um, soon or not, but it is going to be running in June of 2021. So that's something to think about if it is something that interests you. In Worked Up, I have a protocol for beginning work that goes like this. You're going to allow the dog to acclimate to the space first. You are then going to ask the dog if he's capable of eating. Then you're going to ask the dog if he knows his marker cues. And if you remember from episode one, uh, the first episode in this series, Sam taught Mucho some really elaborate marker cues. This is partially why. So after asking the dog if he knows his marker cues, you can ask him if he knows other cues like sit, down, spin, um, do a nose target. And for each of those cues, you are going to also mark and reinforce. And if all of that goes well, then we know that the dog is here. The dog is able to participate at least on that basic level. And then we ask the dog for his start button behavior. In this specific example, the start button behavior is something that we have trained the dog that if he does it, he gets to do agility. That means that if the dog can't or doesn't want to do agility, they will not do the start button behavior if they really understand it. Mucho's start button had been poisoned due to Sam insisting that he do agility even after the start button failed in the specific location where agility was also being poisoned for him. So Mucho didn't want to or was not able to do agility in that specific context. He was being asked to. He was saying no. The start button was working the way that it was supposed to, but Sam didn't think it was working the way that it was supposed to, and so she asked him to do agility anyway, or she asked him for the start button multiple times until he gave it to her. This is really common. I work with a lot of people who make these mistakes. So what we needed to do is retrain the start button, religiously use the worked up protocols before beginning work to make sure that we were even in the right to ask for the start button. And then always, always honor the start button response. So if Mucho refused the start button, we would stop and soothe and in the worked up protocol, anytime the dog fails, you can offer a soothing mechanism. Most of the time, this is a food scatter, but sometimes it is a pattern feeding um, process. So I feed from my left hand and then my right and back again until the dog gets into kind of a rhythmic 
But sometimes it is just going back to acclimation, going back to walking around the space. And sometimes it could be more specific, like loading a snuffle mat. So if Mujo refused the start button, Sam would soothe and ask one more time. And my rule is to kind of, you can ask twice, but that, but no more than twice. If you know your dog and you know that if they say no, it means no, then don't ask twice. So my dog Felix, if he opts out of a start button, he's saying no, I may as well not ask him again. With Mucho, oftentimes he'd say no, he'd get that soothing mechanism and he'd come back and he'd be able to do it. So that was kind of working for them, started to really work for them. A part of the start button issue is actually that it was too often linked to a start line stay, which is a very difficult behavior for Mucho. And this is a really common thing. This is a common mistake that people make is they religiously do the, um, they religiously ask for the start button behavior and then give the dog a start line stay. And the dog thinks, no, I, I would like to do agility, but I would like to not stay. And they're saying no to the stay. So anytime she needed to soothe, she made sure not to give him the stay after that start button. Now, we could really dig into some operant principles at play here and wonder whether or not he was doing that intentionally, whether he knew that if he refused the first time, he wouldn't be asked to stay. Gosh, who knows? And I wish we could ask Mucho, but I also encouraged her to do fewer and fewer stays and to put a lot of money in the bank on that start line stay with smart reinforcement. We then slowly started to integrate this process into different locations. At a point, Sam decided to stop going to her agility class that was ending in frustration and tears most of the time and started to train Mucho elsewhere. Then we started to train him in more and more places with this protocol, and he was opting into agility in a lot of places. But when we tried again at the original location, he'd often still opt out or he'd opt in for half or a quarter of a lesson and then not for the rest of it. Important to segue, I think, and say that during Sam's agility training with Mucho, we needed him to eat, right? So we needed him to eat the food that we were using to soothe and also to reinforce behaviors. So we worked so hard on this dog eating anywhere that she would take him. She'd get him out of the car and offer him food. Um, if he ate food, they'd get to go on the walk. If he didn't, he didn't. Um, he didn't get to go. So she'd work really hard on him kind of controlling himself enough that he could take food and eat it without choking. Understand it's a really common issue. Um, I believe that there's a parasympathetic nervous system kind of process at play here. So if the dog is in such a highly aroused or nervous state, this parasympathetic nervous system is saying, no, no, we can't possibly eat right now. We are in fight or flight. Then... Something has got to bring the dog down a notch to allow them to eat. So soothing him was as important for him to eat as anything else. So we would need, you know, we needed to find ways to help him take that deep breath and take a bite of food because it was very cyclical. He'd get himself too worked up to eat, which meant that we then couldn't soothe him, which meant that he was in turn too worked up to eat. 
we got really, really clear about reading choking or <clears throat> making just a little <clears throat> hacking sound as food refusal. So anytime a dog in the worked up protocol refuses food, we need to back up the ladder, go back to the previous step. So for instance, if my dog refuses food in step two of the worked up protocol, which is where I just ask him if he can eat, I'm going to back up and go back to acclimation before I ask him again. If my dog refuses food or chokes on food during cue testing, which comes after marker testing, I'm going to back up and go to marker testing. So we started to read choking as serious as food refusal and treating it like that in our training. We switched to really big treats only. So this is where it was nice that Mucho is such a big guy and he can take in a lot of food because we use really huge hunks of freeze-dried raw in his training so that it was more of a big thing to swallow. That was just kind of a thought that I had that did turn out to work for him that if we use tiny treats, he was more likely to just chipmunk them and put them in his cheek and then choke on them later. So we use these big hunks of food so that we were aware of whether or not he swallowed it. Any choke, any hack, we'd just back up the ladder. We'd go back to acclimation. We'd go back to maybe a food scatter. A lot of dogs can eat off the ground when they can't eat from your hand. And he really started to learn to keep himself in a place of calm enough to eat. Today, he might occasionally choke, but if it happens, we read it as a tell on his mental state. We give him some space, give him some time, put him on a station with a snuffle mat, let him take a breather. Speaking of his station with a snuffle mat, transitions were also a thing and they were something that we trained really heavily. So what do I mean by transitions? From work out of work and back into work again is a transition. We worked on this with a station. So anytime there was a lull or a break in training, Mucho was stationed and then we returned back to work off of his station. We did a whole lot of station to work and back again. We also did station to station work in work scenarios. He'd have two different stations. He'd be asked to go from one to the other before being asked um, the worked up protocol questions and then finally the start button. He also had transition issues in life. So coming inside from the yard was tough for him. We really had to dig in and teach him to do that. We did it with a long line, just he wasn't allowed to stay in the yard if he was being asked to come in. Um, leashing up was a thing, leashing up on trails. Big deal for this guy. Leashing up at the end of agility, big deal. So we actively trained him a leash up cue, um, did it at random to make sure that it wasn't always associated with the end of anything. And this is really important for a lot of these dogs with really big feelings that we, that we talk about. So finally, when we ended coaching, the pandemic was just ramping up. So it was a good time, it was a good natural time to take a break from agility overall for Sam. She had left the training facility that she started with, had, was training in other places, and was just not sure about going back to trialing, was not sure if Mucho was even going to say yes to trialing, because he'd need to say yes to a group class first. Know that social pressure weighed in with on Sam it kind of weighed on Sam and Mucho's relationship this is not uncommon okay so social pressure to participate in class 
to go to agility trials, to have a dog that's running agility because you always have, was harmful to the progress that Sam and Mucha were able to make in the beginning. This is not uncommon. And if you're struggling with this in your sport, so your dog maybe is taking a longer route than you're used to, needs a different way of training than you're used to, I want you to just kind of check yourself here and ask yourself, am I continuing to go to that agility class because of social pressure or because it is helping me? Am I entering this trial because of social pressure or because my dog and I are ready and it's how I want to spend my weekend? Think about those things. They matter. You as the human half do matter and the social pressures that exist in dog sports can be monumental. I know this for sure firsthand. As I've mentioned, the school where Mucho's agility was originally taking place and was originally poisoned is one of the best in the country. So this isn't because a bunch of people were mean to him, sprayed him with squirt bottles, or, you know, did, did bad things to him. Nobody did bad things to him. It's just that our entire cultural viewpoint on the sport of agility could use a shift, in my opinion, and sometimes it takes a dog like Mucho to be that catalyst to cause that shift. And I, for one, am really excited for episode three, where we get to actually talk to Sam about some of these issues. So stay tuned. All right, some Patreon questions for you. This first one comes from Connor, who writes... Neutral hand positions while training. What do you do? Why does it matter? You have different positions you use. What for and why? So, Connor, thanks for your question. And what's important, I think, to give as background information here is that, yeah, your hands got to go somewhere, right? So when you're training, your hands need to go somewhere. And dogs learn really, really early on to cue off of our hands because it's often the most salient piece of information they can get from us. I have what I call standby um, for my dogs, and that's both of my hands are at my side. And that means wait for information. If I want my dog to offer behaviors or try stuff, I put my hands together in front of me or I hold my food container in front of me um, in those hands. So it kind of looks the same both ways. What's important about this is to avoid the dog throwing behaviors at you when, when that's not what you want, when you actually want them to wait. So if we teach them to be quote unquote operant or we teach them to try stuff and be clever and, and you know be engaged in the training, then we also need them to know when that's not what we want. So I want them to know, you know, this is a session where I will be cueing you and I will be telling you what to do. And then this is a session in which I would like you to um, color outside the lines. And so my hand positions tell them both of those things. Thanks for your question, Connor. Next one comes from Lindsay, who writes, any advice on how to get my dog to maintain a tighter orbit around me during decompression walks? My one-year-old Shiba Inu is a confident dog and likes to range out further than I'm comfortable with. He will frequently run out of my sight, just checking out the environment. When he realizes he doesn't see me anymore, he will backtrack to find me within a few minutes, but I'd rather him stay closer to me to begin with. He has high prey drive and will also run up to greet strange dogs, so if I see a potential trigger, I'll pick him up and the long line he drags because I'm not confident about his recall in those situations. 
I always pay him for check-ins and his recall is decent, but I don't do it too much because I don't want to ruin it. Okay, so I train a tight orbit by reinforcing frequently. So reinforcing check-ins really frequently. I also like to walk my dogs with dogs that have tight orbits so that they um, stay close because the other dogs are staying close and the other dogs are getting food and so they want to stay close for the food. If he's not checking in a lot, I would use super high value food for the check-ins. I often talk about a, a medium value food for check-ins and then a super high value food for the recall. I would use all really high value food to produce that tighter orbit. I would also break into training sessions um, kind of at random so the dog thinks about keeping his eye on you because you might do something fun. And I would also play a game that I call, um, I'm not a cool mom. I'm a reg I I'm sorry. I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, <laughs> which is a ridiculous name for a game that just means point stuff out to your dog that you think the dog might think is interesting so that he thinks that you're on a good walk too, that you care about stuff in the environment that he might care about. So go over to a tree and point at it and be like, hey, check this out. And then like hide a treat under a leaf or something. Or if there's something legitimately interesting on the tree, like, um, I don't know, a mushroom that is dog safe for sniffing, point that out. So things like that, or sometimes I'll just bend down and go, oh, check this out. And I'll pick up a leaf or a stick and I'll toss it and just be exciting and be more fun. And then they will stay closer to you. As far as the prey drive goes, um, that is a totally different issue. I would have a bell on the dog and I would also um, be sure that you are aware of where the prey might be and you are actually walking because this dog is young in less prey laden, <laughs> for lack of a better word, areas. So you don't want to be walking at dawn and dusk when animals are likely to be out and you don't want to be walking where you're not going to necessarily see animals, things like that. Um, and then as far as the other dogs, I think there's a lot of information in this podcast about that, but greeting strange dogs is a thing. And picking uh, picking up the long line, you I misread that you don't pick him up, you pick up the long line, is a good idea when you're seeing a potential trigger. But what you do after that matters. Like, I would stop and hang on. And when he chooses to come back to you, man, whip out the salmon skin, whip out something really good. And just remember that reinforcement produces behaviors you want. So shape the behavior with the reinforcers that you have um, all the time as you go. Okay, next one comes from Courtney. Courtney writes, what's your opinion on humans intervening with friendly dog-on-dog -dog interactions? I find that when letting my Border Collie interact with other dogs, typically as soon as there's a lull in activity or the dogs stop running around and kind of just look at each other, people instinctually want to tell the dogs to go run or go play ASAP and bring the energy back up 100%. I believe the dogs understand dogs a lot better than humans do, and I just wonder how necessary it is that we involve ourselves at all. For further context, my Border Collie is a year and a half old, and I don't really feel she needs to be running around all crazy every moment she's off leash with another dog. We're now actually working on not getting overly excited around other dogs because we did so much socializing when she was a puppy, she thinks everyone is a friend she needs to meet. So you're totally right, Courtney. I would not be telling them to go run or go play. <laughs> In fact, when there's that natural lull... I reinforce that lull. I do a big group scatter, um, especially when I have high energy breeds like Border Collies. I want to reinforce anytime they self-regulate and bring themselves down. I 
actually it makes me nuts when people are constantly egging the dogs on to make them run. They certainly don't need to be doing that. Your instinct in this situation is totally, totally on point. And the last one is coming from Mackenzie. Mackenzie writes, I have a 15-month-old Beethan Hound. Right now I'm struggling a lot with him anticipating slash assuming what I'm about to ask for. Our biggest problem is during feeding time. His feelings about feeding time are so big. He's calmer and more focused for high-value treats during training than he is for his wobbler or slow feeder with plain kibble, though this is a dog that is a giraffe-shaped trash compactor. So he eats at a crate to avoid annoying my older dog, and I have to hand target walk him to his crate because he has injured himself and nearly rolled his wire crate flying into it before. I feel bad that he is so frantic and that his feelings are so big. He's desperate to get to his meals and will rapid fire offer things without thinking or being aware of his surroundings in hopes it gets him the bull wobbler faster. I do feed him appropriately too. It's just meal times that are causing the big feelings. I've tried scatter feeding him his dinner and it does help, but I worry that he will end up having the same big feelings about scatters in time. And I don't want to have that happen if I do end up needing to use it out and about as well. He's calmest when I'm asking for little things, a sit, spin, nose touch, etc., and doing mini scatters, but I'm conflicted about making him earn his meals, even though it keeps him from getting hurt or frantic. Any thoughts on how to get him to ramp down for mealtime? So I would tell him what to do. I would tell him exactly what to do and I would reinforce him for doing it. So I would tell him, I would lead him by the collar, first of all, um, and feed him the whole time that you're doing so rather than asking for those nose touches, just because being led by a collar is inherently calmer than doing nose touches. And then I would ask him to go in his kennel and I would teach him to lie in his kennel with the door open and wait for you to bring the thing back. And you may need to teach that outside of mealtime and then insist on it during mealtime. Put him there, ask him for it, go to get his thing. He's going to break and you're going to go, oh, I thought you wanted to eat. Let's let's try this again. Bring him back, put him back in the crate, go get it again. It's going to be a process, but he needs you to tell him what to do because like you said, he's frantic. And what's frantic behavior coming from? It's coming from desperation. It's coming from, I don't know what, what behavior is going to get me the thing that I need. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. And so simply telling him exactly what he can do to get his thing is what I would do. You had started this out with a different question. You said you're struggling a lot with him anticipating or assuming what you're about to ask for. That's a different question from ramping down mealtime, but I think that they're related in the sense that he needs very clear information from you probably all the time. He sounds like a very cool dog and a very driven dog, and I would be channeling that into a lot of training, tons of training, and giving him the information that he is so desperate for. And that's it for this week. Thank you all for your questions. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dogs. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.